Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome back, Superhumans. What a delight to be with you. I hope that you will find this episode as fascinating as I did, as we will be diving deeply into all things Vikings, Norse traditions, runes, and magic. In the last years, Vikings and their culture have become a focal point of the entertainment industry. And if you're like me, you may have watched all the shows and movies, many of them claiming to give an accurate depiction of Viking life and culture. My guest today is someone who actually has a deep knowledge of Vikings far beyond the scope of pop culture. Kedrick Olson is an author, speaker, and teacher who specializes in Norse mysticism and alternate paths of spiritual growth. He has studied Old Norse literature and spirituality with a focus on runes and magical practices. Kedrick is the author of Runes for Transformation, Using Ancient Symbols to Change Your Life and the secrets he uncovered at the heart of Norse mysticism precisely tie in with contemporary understandings of our psyche and behavior. Our essence, our soul, if you so wish to call it, is deeply interwoven with the energy, spirits, and magic all around us. What if we could tap into our magic and influence the reality around us, and in this way better ourselves and the world? Kedrick will share with us what he has learned about the nature of reality, consciousness, different types of entities and how to encounter them, as well as how to set up for ritual and flow with the magic that is within everything. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I have been so looking forward to this conversation and I'm very grateful you're joining us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm looking forward to our conversation as well. This is going to be great. Yeah, you are really renowned for some very particular things that actually go very deep. And one of the things I actually want to start this conversation with, because you're an expert on it, is Viking culture. In the last years, they've become really a focal point of the entertainment industry. There's so many shows and movies, and I have watched a bunch of them. And quite a few of them are claiming to give an accurate depiction of Viking life and culture. You have studied Norse mythology and also Viking culture. What is actually the accurate definition, if there is, of a Viking? And what are some myths that we keep hearing and that are just not true? That's a great question. The word Viking comes from the Old Norse, from the Norse word vikingar, which basically means someone of the wick or someone of the straight, because a wick, a wick is like a narrow strait of water, narrow body of water. 
And in the Norse language, when a word ends with ing, it means someone born to or born of. So a viking is just someone born to be on the water. It's like our English term of airborne. They're always flying. And the term vikinger was used just for a short time period of Scandinavian history to represent these people who would go out on ships on mostly trading, but sometimes raiding. But it was the idea that they went overseas. And it was really just a part-time summer job is the best way to think of it. They went on these expeditions to get enough money to come back and buy a farm and live as a farmer because a farm was the pinnacle of society in Old Norse culture. It wasn't being this bloodthirsty warrior, go destroy and crush. It was, how do I settle down, raise some animals, have a family and a home and make a living here? That was what the whole purpose of being a vikinger was. Where do you think, especially from our viewpoint, our culture's obsession on focusing what was a small part of their lives and existence comes from? I would say it's a big snowball effect. It started, believe it or not, with the Old Norse people themselves because they were very much an oral tradition. And whenever you have stories being passed down generation after generation, you have to keep those stories interesting and exciting. So they would embellish and exaggerate. And you can think of in the Old Norse time period, the stories that they would sit and tell around the fire were like the Rambo movies of our times. <laughs> There's one guy with a machine gun and a, a 10 guys shooting at him and no bullets land on him at all, but yet he's able to take them all out. So these stories got embellished and made bigger and bigger over the years. And then there was a time period where it just was quiet for a few hundred years. Mm -hmm. Then early 1800s, there was this romanticization of the Viking culture that picked up again, the whole Wagnerian society and all the people working with Wagner were really romanticizing where they started wearing the horned helmets and the winged helmets, because that was what was put into the opera as these nice little embellishments for the opera. And they would drink wine and beer and mead out of glass horns. And so that started to romanticize it. And then we see another wave of this mythological Viking pick up in movies in the 1970s and 70s and 80s, even the 60s, where people love to watch the barbarian movies, men that were barely clothed that always had an ax or a sword walking around going, I smash, I destroy, I'm big and strong, I kill. And that started to take over the predominant culture of what people thought Vikings were, which it's, it's interesting that we can contrast the literature that was written down as part of the oral tradition, which was exaggerated with the archeology span and get a clearer picture of what it was like. And yes, it was definitely a violent time compared to where we live today. But the Norse culture was no more or less violent than just about any other culture was at the planet at the same time period. It's mm -hmm. just their stories got embellished and they didn't really document themselves that well. So a lot of times the Viking stories were, instead of history written by the winners, when it comes to the Vikings, a lot of times history was written by the sore losers. So the stories got embellished again and again. And so we today get this weird impression of what a, a Vikinger was. Mm -hmm. And by the way, here's a little interesting thing to note is after the Viking era ended in the 1100s, 
when these tales were being written down in the sagas with 1300s, 1400s, that sort of thing, the word Vikinger actually became a despicable person. It was not a good person. They were like a pirate or a destitute that always met an ignoble end because they lived an ignoble life. But it was in the 20th century that it started getting to romanticize again and people started going, ooh, noble Viking. And I was like, yeah, but yeah. So the history is a little vague and the modern modernization of it is really vague on what we really know about these people. This is really fascinating, Kedrick. There are so many facts that I was not aware of. And what you just said about the sore losers telling the story, of course, when you're a sore loser, whoever conquered or destroyed or did whatever to you must have been a huge type of enemy, because otherwise, how could you have lost? Exactly. <laughs> so exaggeration. I get it. So with the Vikings, the Vikinger, or Vikinger, as we would say in German, what did they believe about the nature of the universe? What was their cosmology? Ah, the cosmology is fascinating because the lore tells us about nine worlds in existence. Our world that we exist in is called Midgarth, the middle yard. It's just like the middle of everything. And of course, it would be from our perspective. We're in the middle of everything. Then we have the realms of the gods. There are two forms of gods. There is Vanaheim, which is the realm of the nature gods. They work with abundance and fertility, helping your crops to grow. And then we have Ausgarth, which is the realm of like where you'd find Odin and Thor, where they deal with more human-related matters like commerce and families, trade, warfare. They're more human-based. And so each of these two types of deities have their own realms. Then we have the Alfar, the elves, where we have the Svartalfar, the dark elves, which are more like the dwarves that we see in the movie. They're really the nature spirits that work in the underground realms to grow plants, to make minerals, and they can make all sorts of great tools and weapons in their forges. Then we have the Lyosulfur, the light elves which are really more like ascended beings or higher level entities. Sometimes they're human beings that ascended to this higher level. Sometimes they're just another classification of entity. And we often find in the lore that the light elves and the gods are often commiserating together. They're often together. Then we have Jotunheim, which is the realm of the giants, which the lore often depicts as enemies of humankind and the gods because they want to, They have this primal need to be in control of things. But if we really look closer into Norse lore, the Jotunar, the Jotunar, the giants that they talk about are actually another form of land being. They are like the mountains. They are the storms. They don't care about human existence. But if you get in the way of these mountains or these storms doing their thing, you're going to be crushed. So, of course, mm -hmm. old oral traditions would say, oh, This awful giant came in and smashed us and destroyed us. But Thor, who came in with the storms and chased them away with the lightning and the thunder to chase them away. So it's an interesting mythological, mythologizing, eh, making mythology of it. The last two realms are very interesting. Oh, wait, we forgot one of the most important ones. Helheim, ah. the realm of the dead, where we find the goddess Hel, not to be confused with the Christian form of Hel. But this is a place of transition and transformation where you get some healing to undergo and where you can become who you really are at the authentic level. Now, in between all of those seven realms 
We have the realms of fire and ice. We have Wuspelsheim, which is extreme fire, where we find the fire giants. And we find Niflheim, which is complete ice. It's like absolute zero. There's no movement, no nothing. And what I find interesting about Muspelsheim and Niflheim is when we look to more of the medieval uh, hermeticism and alchemy, we find the phrase salve et coagula, mm-hmm. where salve is to dissolve, to remove, to break down, and coagula is to build up and to increase. Well, when we have Muspelsheim fire, that is the ultimate in salve. And then we have coagula, the land of ice, that is the ultimate coagula. So all of these worlds in this whole cosmology is really different variations, different densities, shall we say, of fire and ice interplaying to create these various realms of all these various beings that they exist in. So Muspelsheim and Niflheim are basically, in a sense, if I understand that correctly, you can also think about them as these polarities via which realms and realities are created. Exactly. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to learn about how you actually got inspired to delve so deeply into the Norsk mythology. And then I also would like to hear about, in your own perception, what the nature of reality is. Ah. Okay, we can do that. I got into this Norse stuff when I was a kid. I often talk about growing up in my parents' house when I was in my early teens, even before teens. I was living in the basement of my parents' home, and the entire basement was like a huge library. You could have books Mm -hmm. about anything, all the encyclopedias. There were books on magic and mysticism. And as I was exploring these books, I came across a book called Secret Teachings of All Ages, which I still have on the back of my shelf over here. It's this big, huge, tome-sized book talking about mystery traditions all over the world, everything from the Egyptian mysteries to the Eleusinians to Masons and Rosicrucians. They even talked about the Odinic Brotherhood in there, which at that time, I was just like, okay, whatever. But as I'm reading through this and reading all of these different traditions and these books on Wicca and magic and everything, I'm like, it occurred to me, even when I was 10, 12, 10 to 12 years old, that all of these traditions are saying the same things over and over. They're just using different words, different terminology. And I said, okay, if I'm really to understand this from a practical way to make really good use of it, I need to choose one system and one system only that I can delve into and get really deep into and see if I can make it my own and understand it. At that time, I happened to come across Ralph Blum's Book of Runes. I was reading that. I was listening to some crazy music out of England, a band called Sabbat. Mm -hmm. And I was reading a book called The Way of Weird from Brian Bates. And it was just like all of these pieces fit into place about this Norse tradition. And I'm like, okay, this feels like something that's right for me. This feels like something I want to do. I said, I'm going to choose this as my one path. And I did. I delved deep into it for a long time. I read every book that I could, the Poetic Edda, the Prose Edda, all of the sagas. I got into the secondary literature, which is the the literature written by the scholarly people, the people with all the degrees writing about the Norse cultures and 
their analysis of what these stories mean compared to the archaeology, I started translating the Eddas and the Old Norse stuff for myself from Old Norse. I'm not that good at it. I still have to use the dictionaries and stumble and bash my way through it. But I really took a deep dive, and I've still said this isn't good enough because to these cultures, to these Old Norse people, these were practical everyday things. This wasn't like go to church on Sunday and I'm a good Christian kind of thing. This was like we live every day with these land spirits. We live every day with the spirits in our house. We live every day trying to connect with the gods to make our lives better. And so all of the stuff that is in this Norse lore, this Norse practice, had to have a practical everyday real world use to them. So that's where I started to focus. What can we do in the modern time? As if these ancestors built a road that led up to where we are today, how do we create where we are today with a way that works for us here so that we can continue this road for future generations? And that's where I started building out my practices and the teachings and everything I did was to give it this practical real world usage while it's very well steeped and well versed in Norse lore and Norse history. So we can really use it today effectively. Beautiful. And to just tie up also with, so I love how you got in onto this particular path and what a blessing to have a childhood where you're, where you live was just filled with this different knowledge and all these wonderful books. That just sounds amazing. And through your practice, through your learning and immersion in this, what today is your perception of the nature of reality? And I realize that this is a big question, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe yep, you have yep. a nutshell version of it. Because as I look to the Norse lore, as I look to the comparative literature from other traditions and my practical real world trying to get into things and working with entities and working with beings, because I go to wacky woo land and things are strange out there. The way I've come to understand it, and this is going to sound a little bit strange at first, but I'll bring it to some sense of reality that we can use, is the basis of everything, the root of all things is actually darkness. It is the space between stars. It is that greater than infinite potential that can create anything from it. And it, Norse lore, they consider that in the Gunuga Gap time period, in the Hebrew tradition, this is Ein and Ein Sof. Mm -hmm. These things that exist there, the Greek tradition would have called it chaos, where there's like nothing, there's absolutely nothing. But in this greater than infinite potential of nothing, we find a form of consciousness, like a conscious layer that we cannot comprehend with our linear brains. We just can't. It just seems so strange, so bizarre, so outside of all of us. But this darkness condenses a little bit, like coagulates and condenses into what we would understand as the astral realms, as spiritual energy, as subtle energy. And this is where we find the conscious existence of spiritual beings, the gods, the alphar, all of these sort of entities in this subtle layer of condensation. And this is where we start to understand light coming into being. Light comes from this darkness. Now, this subtle energy condenses even further into the electromagnetic spectrum that we understand as light and magnetism in our world. 
that further condenses into physical matter where it can make now form and shape and it can be solid substance but it's still the same darkness consciousness that condenses into everything and this is where i tell people that we hear this notion going through metaphysical and new age circles that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience or having a human experience and i'm like no not true absolutely not true we are physical and spiritual beings having a dynamic experience mm. what happens to one affects the other they co-create each other mm. constantly because they're the same stuff and because they're the same stuff that there is this kind of a mutual existence the i think the most powerfully creative force to humanity that we have here is our collective unconscious our collective unconscious is that which creates the physics of the world that we exist in because i truly believe that humanity's greatest superpower is that we create through observation when we observe something it collapses into actuality and it becomes real and we can use that observation ability for magic of all kinds for manifestation but it is also the basis of how we create our world that if we are collectively agreeing upon that gravity works in this way that light works in this way that comet is not coming to destroy our planet that there is not going to be a nuclear war to destroy us that if we mutually agree that these things are what reality is that is what we are creating through our continued observation and that still just comes back from that layer of darkness that condenses into our form of creation here in a nutshell that's my theory of how the universe works outstanding thank you kadrick and um, it really resonates with me what you just shared about your session of the collective consciousness and i've always nurtured the thought that whichever reality we create it's whatever uh, at whatever given moment whatever energetic field whatever resonance we have within us snaps with clicks with one of the infinite possibilities and in all the infinite universes out there and bam that then becomes our reality so of course collectively we have in a sense a superpower and it can be used for good or it can be used for bad and i've been watching with great interest especially over the last few years how the collective conscious and also subconscious has been influenced and it was particularly interesting it's probably not the correct word but to watch how easily our fears can get triggered and then our world view shifted and the way we act or rather react gets shifted dramatically do you have any thoughts on that this is the way humanity at the physical level exists we are motivated by avoiding fear in mass like individually there's this great quote that i'm going to it's a tongue in cheek thing i think but i think there's some serious truth to it individually humans can be extremely brilliant but collectively we are just idiots <laughs> and what's meant by that is that fear that collective fear that's out there is because we have this innate hardwired need to avoid a threat that we have this fear to avoid the unknown and it comes to us from the paleolithic times is what kept our paleolithic ancestors alive when you're standing in, around the fire and you hear a rustling in the tall grass not to go out into the tall grass 
you hear a growling, you're instantly like, ooh, what's going on? Or it's at night, right? In the darkness, you can't see that well, but that's where their predators are out there. So we have this innate fear of darkness. And if we get, and I'm not going to go, I don't know, maybe it will. If we get people out there that know how to manipulate our fears, they'll poke us and they'll really play on those fears at the irrational level. And this is one of the things about human beings is we make 100% of our decisions emotionally, and then we justify it with a logic that we have. So now if somebody has their own personal motivations or the motivations of their organization or whatnot, they're giving us a fear argument then they give us a little bit of logic to substantiate that fear. That's all people need at the collective level to go, oh my God, we're in danger. This is going on. And in the meantime, we're like, not really. Maybe it's still something that maybe you need to keep your eye on to be aware of it. So you can make a higher level conscious decision of what's right for you to do about it. But these overwhelming messages that keep coming in over and over and over and over with a tiny little soundbite of logic to justify it. That's what is really, I think, riling people up. And I've got my inner cynic that says that the news media's number one job is to scare you into watching the next commercial. Yes, absolutely. Of course. And we're hardwired, as you also just said, we pay attention to what we perceive as a threat. That's what our brain does because our brain's number one job is to keep us alive. So we focus more on something that seems terrible or horrible than on the many other things that are just calm or pleasant. So when we speak about, because what's happening is really a mass manipulation and playing on, on, on our fears, how can we change that as individuals who see this and would like to do something moving the needle away from that one of the tenets that i consider important for spiritual evolution is a part of this and it's embracing cognitive dissonance and what i mean by that is you believe x is real x is the only way the world works what if Y works? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. No, it can't happen. Let's pretend that Y works now. And if you go out and you can find if Y works out in the world, then you'll start to see examples of how Y works in the world. And then you go, wait a minute, what? So now let's try Z. Now does Z work in the world? And then you realize that this belief process and this fear process is a weird little cognitive bias feedback system that we have put in place. If we believe in something, then we're going to find things in the world that reinforce that belief and we're going to ignore everything else. So if you embrace that cognitive dissonance and you look at something that completely different opposite way, and then you go find examples in the world, how that is true, then you can start using that belief as a tool. So now you see these big systems and you see the news media, or you hear somebody talking a fear thing at you, you can go, great, let's play around with it. Let's see if that's true. And you can embrace that just for a moment, be intentionally biased toward that opinion and see examples of it, how it is in the world. Then you intentionally go, okay, it's not true. It's completely made up and fake. Then you go see examples of it in the world. And as you start to pull those pieces together and you work with those different polarities with yourself and trying to find alternate paths, then you're able to better cognitively assess what's going on and make a better decision for yourself because you're able to 
play this little game with yourself of belief and see what really is and isn't true. That's a very interesting suggestion and experiment. And especially in our culture where we're taught things are either black or white, where we have this dualistic type of worldview, which of course very intensely figures are what we fear or what we're drawn to. Before we dive deeper into your personal practices, I'd like to talk a little bit about mysticism, spirituality, and religion. And how are these connected to each other and also where they potentially contradict each other? Sure. The model that I'd like to present when describing mysticism, religion, spirituality, all of that sort of thing, is imagine there's an old lady sitting in a garden with a prayer wheel. Mm -hmm. She's spinning the prayer wheel, or maybe she's just saying a prayer, but I'm going to use the prayer wheel for now. And she's spinning the prayer wheel. And that is part of her, let's say, spiritual practices, just spinning that prayer wheel. She knows what the prayer means. She knows what it's all about. Maybe it's compassion or the easing of suffering or for abundance, whatever it is, she's spinning that. Next to this garden is a monastery of monks who are chanting that prayer over and over as part of their religion, they too know deeply what that prayer means, what it's all about. And they are thinking, feeling, experiencing the intensity of what that prayer means. And by their continued chanting, thinking, feeling, experiencing it, they're inserting that information into the collective unconscious so that it works for this lady spinning the prayer wheel. So that's where we can see spirituality and religion. You know, spirituality is more of the practical day-to-day. How do we make the spiritual practice work for me? Religion is more of the dogmatic, the structure, the order. Sometimes we get the deeper study and the deeper understanding of what it is. But mysticism, though, mysticism is this little layer that sits underneath all of that, where you have this deep understanding of why chanting those prayers over and over helps that lady spin the prayer wheel to get her needs met that way. So deep in that chamber where the monks are chanting, there would be this inner chamber where the higher level adepts who have studied and practiced and understand how the universe works, how consciousness works, and how religion works, and how spirituality works. And they're the ones who write the prayers. They're the ones who come up with a chance and say, this is why this works, and this is how this works. Then they give it to the monks that are doing their chanting, then they make the prayer wheel for the people that go out there. So ultimately, we can take whatever spiritual practices out there, whatever religious practices out there, and distill it down to this mystical layer to ask, why does this work? And how is this working? What is the process that makes this thing work? Because if we assume, if somebody believes in their religion or their spiritual practice, then 100% of the time it's true. Why is that? Mysticism answers that question. Thank you for your explaining that to us. There's a lot of food for thought here for me. And my follow-up question would be, where in this does magic flow or weave in? That really depends because magic goes from the mystic to the religious to the spiritual because religion does magic, right? When they have the group gatherings and they say, hey, let's pray for this or let's do this little ceremony. That's a group level magic at the religious level. At spiritual level, if we are sitting there and we are visualizing 
ooh, I want to get home safely today. And you're visualizing that you're pulling into your driveway, into your garage, and you made it home safe. Even though it's snowy and icy outside, you visualize that moment. That's a spiritual practice of manifestation and magic. But we can get to the deep mystical level. Even before the mystical level, we can get to, let's say, the esoteric or the occult level where you have people with altars and candles and incense. This is where you find witchcraft and magic and galder, all of these kind of things where people are accessing more of the deeper parts of their conscious using these tools. But mysticism gets to that point of going, okay, I understand the candle tunes you into this. I understand burning these herbs opens this possibility for you but it really comes down to your consciousness and your connection of consciousness to the collective unconscious, to reality, and your ability to observe reality into existence. And that all of those tools, all of those religions, all of those practices really are just different window dressings to help our consciousness tune in to our natural capabilities. I once read the definition of magic as being able to change consciousness at will, which I found very compelling. What is your definition of magic, Kedrick? It's very much in line with that one. To me, magic is the subtle layers of our consciousness existing with the subtle layers of reality to come to an agreement on what can be observed into creation. That was beautiful. And you just mentioned, of course, when you're using altars or candles or incense or all kinds of different tools. And of course, there's also certain systems of magic or philosophies. What kind of magic do you engage and work with? Depends on the situation and the people and what's going on. My best manifestation abilities have come from taking a walk through a park and just visualizing and experiencing the moment that I want to have happen. And then get this, forget that it ever happened. Because if I can forget that I did the work, that means I'm not going to be always messing with it and trying to get involved with it and change it. I'm just like, it's done. Let it go. How it works. But I also will use runes. Runes have been a big part of my magic work for a long time. Now, mind you, when I talk about runes, I'm not talking about divination with runes. I'm not talking about like fortune telling with runes. That was something that was invented in the 1980s. Remember I mentioned that book, Ralph Blum, Book of Runes. That's the first time I've ever been able to find divination with runes. Prior to that, in the old Norse culture, runes were, of course, a a system of writing. It's where we get letters like C, B, S, T. They come from runes. The same phonetic value, the same shape. Same everything. If you were to see an old rune stone from a thousand years ago with the word sister on it, you'd be able to read it without any help. It'd be perfectly. But runes were also tools for magic, for manifestation, for everything from abundance to healing, you name it. They were there. And runes were sung to bring their magic about. It's called Gulder, where you're mm. able to sing runes into creation. And Norse lore is filled with examples of people singing the runes. You'd carve the runes onto a piece of wood or you'd paint it onto stone. They were carved into stone too, but you'd carve it into wood. And as you're singing that, you could scrape off the runes into a beaker of beer or a horn of mead or into the fire. And 
those runes that you're singing, each one of them has an intention, has a meaning to it, and that tunes your consciousness into that creation. So remember when I talked about working with the subtle layers of consciousness and the subtle layers of the universe? runes are the ties that bind those two things together mm -hmm. runes aren't necessarily these cute little letters on pieces of wood chips they are different focus intentions different levels of working of consciousness they came from a time before time so runes have been a huge part of the magic working that i do in a lot of different ways everything from manifestation to consciousness shift to even spiritual evolution runes are an integral part of all of that and you explain a lot of this in your book, Runes for Transformation, and how to use these ancient symbols to for your own growth and also how to change reality and how they can help us unlock our own potential. I would like to, before we go further down that road, for some of the audience, listeners have been with me for a longer time. They know I like to go deeply down the rabbit hole. And I also practice quite a few things about which get talked about in this podcast. For those who are more exclusively scientifically focused in their assessment of the world, could you share with us some science that backs up this spirituality and also the type of magic and definition of reality that we're talking about right now? I'll do my best here uh -huh. because I know the work of Hammeroff and Penrose talked about the virtual energy that exists within the microtubules of our neuron and their results have actually been repeated by other scientists and this shows us that spiritual energy that exists within the neural network of the body and that tells us not only does that the soul exist that the spiritual side of humanity exists but that it exists at the consciousness level because it's all the neurons everything we think feel and experience becomes what tunes that energy output. And there is a number of sciences coming up today that talks about like the magnetic field of the heart, the magnetic field of the brain, and how they can be out of sync and then putting them in sync helps that inner world to connect. There's a lot of studies out there on the benefits of meditation. But if I'm gonna go into a little bit of wacky woo-woo stretch it out territory. Please. If we were to look at quantum physics and quantum science, it serves only as a metaphor because the mechanisms are different in magic and manifestation than the mechanisms of quantum science. Because we know in quantum science is where if you observe a waveform, it can collapse into a particle, but we have to be aware of what that observation really means because when we are observing in the quantum level, it's actually a destructive process you have to interfere with it. Because if you're gonna observe a photon, it has to collide with a photon receptor. You can't see a photon flying by. You just can't because the only way you could see a photon is if they hit your eye and go to the retina and into your eye. So this is why I use quantum science only metaphorically. So how we can look at some of this stuff is that there is no time. Quantum science shows that there's no time whatsoever. Everything is happening simultaneously. And when we hit a moment in our current time period, when we observe something that never existed, we create the processes to bring that thing into existence. 
This is the work of Robert Lanza when he wrote in his book, Biocentrism. And he gave a great thought experiment that if you were to dig into the ground and discover a rock, and you were the first person ever to see that rock, then all of the geological events that needed to happen to put that rock into place suddenly happened in nonlinear time space to put that rock there so that you could discover it. But you created that because you observed the rock. So we're going to build on that metaphor back to what I was talking about. When you want to get home safely, you visualize yourself pulling into the driveway, into the garage. You have the entire experience in your mind using your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is designed to do this. See every detail of that experience. And because there is no time, by observing it in this way, you quasi-collapse that reality. It partially collapses into existence. Now, we here in our physical world have to experience time in a linear sense. And so now that this is partially collapsed, we are moving forward in time until we can observe that in the physical reality where it collapses fully into actualization. Mm. And so this is the rudimentary science. It's not really science, but it's the heuristic model that I create to help understand how magic and manifestation works because it's that energy that we are generating from those neurons in our body that tune in to that possibility, to that existence. And that is what tunes our observation to make that reality an actuality. Hmm. And how much do underlying emotions matter when we visualize whatever outcome? 100%. You have to be coherent. Because if you are thinking, ooh, I want to make it home safe, but feeling, no, this is dangerous. I'm going to have an awful time. This is going to be bad. You're out of coherence. You're not creating this in-phase reality where they can come together. So this is where I tell people the secret to manifesting is thinking, feeling, and experience. So you want to think about what you want to have happen. You want to feel it as if it's actually happening right now, not getting there but actually happening right now and then try to create that experience as much as you can in your mind where you're seeing it you're hearing it you're touching it you have all of these different sensations and by doing those three things it comes into a semi-actuality a quasi-collapsed state so that you can actually experience it for real mm -hmm. emotions are hugely important to be in so, coherence and so how about people who are just used to because how life has been prior to them, their experiences, people are used to being in negative emotional and thought loops for whom it's really hard to imagine something happening to them that they actually desire, or at least think they desire on a conscious level. How can they start practicing to get out of this fear and negativity loop? I love that you asked that question because This has been the emphasis of my work for the past few years. This is why I don't call myself a light worker. I'm a shadow worker because in my years of teaching people spiritual growth and their inner evolution work, I keep coming across this, the fear, the, the blocks, all of the kind of stuff that gets set up, the negative beliefs, the self-doubt, the self-sabotage that keeps getting in the way. They think they want something but they don't believe it. They aren't feeling it. So they aren't experiencing it. So we go into shadow work 
And shadow work is like the deep, dark, and scary dive into spiritual work. It's where you go into that belief, oh, I'm not good enough to earn that kind of money. And it's okay, cool. You're not good enough to earn that kind of money. That's great. Why? And you go and you feel it. You really feel it. And then you get into the memory. You get into the history of that. You go deep dive into that. And then you realize, oh, this happened in my past. That happened in my past. This is what was going on. And you realize that shadow that was stopping you, that that negative belief was actually protecting you and helping you at some point in your life. Because if it wasn't there, your life would have really sucked. So you created this belief. I'm not good enough to do this. So I'm not even going to try. That kept you small, that kept you quiet, that kept you hidden. So that maybe you have that overbearing parent that's always screaming in your face. You're not good enough. You can't do this. I'm not good enough. I won't do it. So I don't get yelled at now. Now you're an adult. Now you want to have a business and you're like, oh, I don't think I'm good enough to do that. And you realize it was that overbearing parent. And you go, oh, I was a kid. I was three years old. Of course, I'm going to suck at washing the dishes. Of course, that, that, that doesn't mean I can't run a business now. And then you go, cool. Thank you for keeping me safe and protected when I was there. Now I know. And then you unwind it. And we do that shadow work for all sorts of things all over the place. And it's suddenly those blocks to spiritual growth, those blocks to manifestation, they're just like, they get whiffed out of the way. And it's mm -hmm. cool. This makes it easy. Shadow works essential for clearing that stuff out to be able to make manifestation work better. 100%. And I think it's, uh, it's concerning that if you look at the larger culture that we live in, that we tend to, we're actually taught to suppress negative emotions and thoughts, either suppress them, nobody wants to hear if you ask them, how are you doing? Oh, I'm really not doing great. Just as a small part of this bigger cultural web that we've woven there. But also we like to escape these emotions. We like to numb them. We're not really used to sitting with them, which we need. The only way is through. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so when we're talking about shadows, can you tell us what shadows actually are? Of course, negative emotions and feelings, but they're also more than that, right? In fact, I wouldn't even say they're negative. I try to go mm -hmm. out of my way to say that they're not negative. They're unwanted behaviors, mm -hmm. beliefs, thoughts and emotions that mm -hmm. seem to be stopping you from what you're doing. And the reason why I say it's not necessarily negative, but unwanted, because when working with clients, working with shadow stuff, sometimes anger issues come up and they think they need to be spiritual beings. And so this anger comes out and they're like, no, spirituality means I've evolved beyond that anger and I don't need to feel anger. It's not there. And so they're repressing that anger. And I stop and I'm like, wait a minute. Let's go back and look at the runes. The third rune in, when we have Feu Urus Thurazaz, this third rune, Thurazaz, is all about aggression and violence and anger because it's what motivates you sometimes to get up and get something done. It's what, when you get really pissed off with something in the world, you want to go up and do something about it. And so working with some of these folks that thought anger was not a spiritual value, it's, wait a minute. That anger can help you. It can really save your butt when you need it to, or it can help propel you into action that you need to do. And what was actually the shadow side was that fear of anger. Mm -hmm. You go into that, why am I afraid of showing anger? Why do I not want to show anger? 
And as I want to be seen and perceived as a good person, and I want to be seen as a spiritual person, but I'm not going to be seen as a spiritual good person if I get angry at something. And I'm like, hmm, let's unwind that. And then we finally, they're able to express that anger in a good, healthy, positive way without that fear coming in, without that repression going in. And mm-hmm. then they realize, great, when we go to the runes, there are all these positive, wonderful things in the runes, but runes are a good, comprehensive view of what it means to be human. So there is the joy and the happiness and the abundance and the strength, and there's the hardship and the sorrows and the aggression and the calamity, just as it means to be human. So as these spiritual, physical beings that we are evolving and constantly growing, it's let's look at what the unwanted behaviors and beliefs and emotions and thoughts are versus what we do want. And then we can do this nice little shift and realize, ooh, sometimes I need this aggression. Then sometimes that jealousy is something that I can actually use. Or one of my favorite ones is like fear of like stage fright kind of thing. (laughs) or fear of going out to do something, it's a sure it's protecting you because you don't want to get laughed at. You don't want to make a mistake in front of a whole bunch of people. But what if you could take that fear, feel that fear, acknowledge that fear is actually trying to protect you. But now you can breathe into that fear and turn that fear into excitement and realize that you can now project that energy outward and make so much more use of it. And that's still shadow work because you're feeling that fear. You're acknowledging that fear. You're thanking that fear for being there and saying, great fear. Let me use that energy now to get this thing and make this thing happen. And it's such a dramatic shift when you can make that happen through shadow work. Yes. To use these emotions as fuel, turn fear into excitement, turn anger into something that propels, whether it's yourself into a different state or whether there's a cause in the world that you want to actually pour this anger in a constructive way, whether it's save the rainforest or clean up the water. And it it can be a tremendous force. I also have found it personally very helpful to actually even openly address these things when whatever, if I have to, if I, not if I have to, words matter. If I get to speak in front of people about a topic that I'm very passionate about, to just address it and say, I am really nervous AF right now, (laughs) standing in front of all you speaking. And automatically, it actually dispels this tension and this fear. And you have connected not only with your shadow and in that way cleared it up, but you've also connected with the collective in that way, because it's something that most people can also relate to. Absolutely. And a great example of that is part of my own practice and teaching is helping to work with pagan men, heathen men, to really connect with a sacred masculine. And in one of the things that I see happen with men is their relationships, not only with their lovers and partners, but in business or friends or family. And it's because as men, we're taught, no, I need to be strong and stoic and I have to be solid and iron and steel. Mm -hmm. But when they can open up and say, this thing here has me a little scared. I'm not sure if I can do this. And they open to that vulnerability. They find that actually what was a weakness was they're being strong and tough, Mm -hmm. but what their strength was like, I don't know if I can do this. Can you help me with this? being open to that vulnerability and making that connection. And as long as they're not with a toxic person or somebody that's dealing with their own crap, 
they're not going to look at that vulnerability as a weakness. They're going to, like, oh, cool. Let me help you. And then you can connect and build. And then they find out there's that strength. The true strength comes in being open and vulnerable rather than tough and guarded. 100%. And when you're talking about the sacred masculine, what does that encompass for you? The way I approach sacred masculine is I never get to tell anybody what it means. In fact, how I work with men with it is we explore different archetypes mm -hmm. of sacred masculinity. For quite a while, I was teaching them as like general pagan archetypes, like the magician, the warrior, the craftsman. But I am now adapting those to heathen Norse archetypes. So when we get to the craftsman, when we get to the protector, when we get to all of these things, we'll take it straight out of Norse lore. And what I do is I describe what each of these archetypes are like. They're good, the bad, the ugly, their strengths, their weaknesses, how we can work with them at the practical level and at the spiritual level. Because one of the things I tell people when they'll tell me my patron God is Odin, I'm like, how do you honor Odin? And it's not just raising a horn in a circle. But what does Odin do? What is Odin's traits? What is his characters like? What does he like to do in the lore? And how can you start living that way yourself? Like Odin likes to teach and learn and lead and guide. So how would you be teaching, learning, guiding, that sort of thing? And as I build out these traits and these characteristics for the archetypes, I invite men to pick and choose those things that apply best to them. So that they take these aspects of the magician, these aspects of the warrior, these aspects of Odin, these aspects of Frere, and they put those aspects together to create their own archetype of what sacred masculinity is to them. And then they start to live that as if they are literally connecting to their higher self through this archetype of sacred masculinity that they created, and they become the living embodiment of this sacred masculine archetype that they created. So now their life becomes a prayer to their sacred higher own being through their very actions, the very deeds and words that they speak and do. Beautiful. And I love the aspect of creating instead of just trying to fit into some type of a mold or being told what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In these spiritual realms, I can't tell anybody anything. I'm, I don't know anything. I'm just some dude who knows some stuff and teaches it, but it's more like I can open a door and say, here's something to go explore. Let's go look at that together, but you've got to create it. You've got to do it. You've got to make this happen for yourself. I'm just here as a guide saying, there it is. Let's go look at, we can do this. Wonderful. And so when we're talking about archetypes or we're talking about gods or enlightened beings, any type of spiritual beings, what would be the first steps, how you guide people or teach them to communicate and connect with spiritual beings? The thing to keep in mind about higher level entities is they speak very quietly and they don't speak very much. And if anything, you'll notice that they don't even use words when they speak. They're just these general, subtle concepts that convey through. Now, if our mind is going chatter all the time, da, 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 we got to do this, got to do this, got to do that. I got to have this happen, this happens going, you're never going to hear it. But if you can use that chatter of your mind and your emotions going, and you can use that as an energy to center yourself, to bring yourself where you can observe your mind and your heart, and you can observe all of this information flowing around like a maelstrom swirling around you. But now you are observing that. 
from this central place of observing all of that information, you can suddenly now pick up that subtle information coming in, that little urge, that little nudge, that little sense of knowing that, I don't know how I know this, but that makes sense. Where does that come from? That's how these higher level beings interact. And if you aren't getting the message right off the bat, but you're now aware of it, you go back out into the world and you're aware of that thing. Look for synchronicities, little moments that just work out, especially guiding you back to that same little tidbit of knowing that you have. And when you can acknowledge that you had that knowing and you had that synchronicity, that's where you had that moment of gratitude. Say, thank you. I got the message. Thank you for that insight. And this is what I want to go do about it. And yes, you can leave an offering at the altar. You can pour some meat into a bowl or leave a plate of food, something like that. Sure, that's great. But the best form of gratitude is to take action on that insight and to that pathway to say, cool, I get it. This is what I need to do. Let's go do it. Thank you for that. And that, that again, tunes you into it. The more you do that, the more you're aware of it, the more you're tuned into it. So the more it keeps happening and the more you're aware of it and the more you're into that inner observer place. It just all starts to snowball and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm now living a sacred life step by step, just by observation and choosing to follow that path. And you just mentioned that the higher entities communicate in subtle ways. You have talked about whisperers. That's and why I call them whisperers is because it's not words. They're not like, hey, dude, why don't you go over here and do that? <laughs> it's I can feel the thoughts in my mind. I can feel the concepts going. But yet there's a subtle little hint. Why don't you go do this? Or how about you look into this? And it's not like the loud noise that the rest of my brain makes. It's like this subtle little quiet hint of something. So it feels like a whisper. So that's why I call them the whispers, because it's really subtle, really quiet, real faint, but it's there. Yeah, that resonates with me too. Let's talk about entities, because this, if we look at the concept of the world that we're taught, especially within our cultures, there's so much more to it. I, for example, remember when I was a child, I regularly saw there were these dark hooded, tall figures. I couldn't really see their faces. They were in shadow. They were standing at the foot of my bed and they just stood there and watched me. And they were as real as my parents who had just previously tucked me in. I did not particularly feel fear in most cases. It was just more like a, huh, what are those guys doing there? I haven't seen them in a long time, but I'd love to do a deeper dive with you into entities, what the range of entities is and how the connection or experiences with them may look like. Oh, sure. There's a uh... We could probably do a whole show on this one. <laughs> there is a lot because again, we are powerfully creative beings. We create thought forms, which is just little balls of energy that hit us with certain feelings. And as we're projecting those feelings back out, it's feeding this thing. So it could be fear over and over. So we're feeling this fear state or it could be happiness and joy and complacency. We're creating those things. Human beings, of course, there's dead people all over the place. They come in different kinds intact souls where they know they're dead, they know what they're doing, or maybe they're lost. Maybe they're trying to figure their way out, but they're still mostly intact. There's revenants, which is like a fraction, a fragment of that soul breaks off, living a tragic moment over and over in its life. 
dead people come in so many different kinds of things. Then there are nature spirits all over the place. And this is what I love about Norse lore is it's got that recognition of nature spirits, the spirits of the trees, of the stones, mm-hmm. of the waters, of the airs. They're all over the place. They're everywhere. And then there are so many other beings that can't be classified that I've seen over the years. Like what you were talking about, the beings standing around your bed, they might be a form of shadow people. They're not evil. They're not malevolent, but they're not good either. They're just, oh, hey, what are you? And we're looking at them going, hey, what are you? But I don't really know what shadow people are. I grew up in a neighborhood full of shadow people. Even people who didn't believe in ghosts would see these shadow people like, Mm -hmm. what's going on out there? Mm -hmm. But they're not bad. And there's all sorts of tulpas, gods. What are we thinking? Egregores are a big one where Mm -hmm. we are collectively creating entities out there that are just roaming all over the place. There's such a vast catalog, and it really comes back down to a point that you made earlier. What is the importance of our feeling? Because that's the first thing I ask anybody when they have a spiritual encounter with an entity. What were you feeling? And as you described, there's no fear. So that tells me right off the bat, it's most likely not a negative entity. But it's more of this, huh, curiosity, what's going on? That's probably what they were doing too, going, what are you? What is this energy that you're output? Because they're subtle beings. They look for different energy outputs, different sorts of energy that comes and goes. Whenever I do a seance, all sorts of different beings come in just because there's that energy. Children are very aware of subtle beings. We, When we're kids, we know these things are all around us. And our parents and teachers and other people convince us that they're imaginary friends or imaginary things, or it's just our imagination. But we know it as kids that they're out there Mm -hmm. and we don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the training. We don't have anybody out there to help us explain what it is we're experiencing. But I tell people, go back to that feeling. What does it feel like? Does it feel peaceful and comfortable? I don't care if it's this black mist running through your room and you're feeling comfortable and happy with it. It's a positive entity. Or if it's like this bright green, shiny, flashy thing, and you're like, oh, scaring the hell out of me, go back to your feeling. Mm -hmm. And the way I describe that and how we interact with them is as human beings, a vast majority of our communication is nonverbal. It's the tone of voice in our body language. Then we'll talk. And that's where we can run into some coherence problem. If somebody's got their arms crossed, they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really happy today. Are you really there's some out of coherence, right? And the same way with spirits is maybe they come in and says, hey, yeah, I'm friendly and happy, but you're getting like this uh-uh vibe off of it. No way, out of here. You're not, no. Spirits will primarily communicate emotionally. And it's in that emotional current where you can pick up what are they really? And then that's where you figure out what that information is that's coming in and whether you want to make use of it. So whenever it comes to any entity working, I tell people, pay attention to the emotion. If you're getting fear and you're getting a negative vibe, hit it with the opposite. Laugh at it. Have a good time. Because if they're trying to make you scared, they're trying to perpetuate a fear state in you and you laugh at them, that's going to be like poison to them. And they're going to get out of there because they're looking for a different kind of energy out of you. Conversely, if it's a happy, higher level entity and you're laughing at it, you're going to energize that connection and you're going to have a much better connection. So always be aware of what your emotional state is and then shift it to the intentional state that you want it to be. And that will change the energy around you, change the interaction that you're having and 
improve or chase away the things that you don't want. And how about entities that you sense are attached to yourself? I think that helped you. Yeah. That's a tricky one because I never pull one off right away. If I have a client saying that they think there's an attachment, we're not pulling that thing off right away. Because it's like right back to shadow work. What if that thing's helping you out in a way that you don't realize it? Mm -hmm. What if you have an emotional need that this thing is helping you with? Because they always attach to some sort of agreement. There's Mm -hmm. always something that we are agreeing internally, emotionally to, energetically to, not necessarily consciously, but emotionally and energetically to having this thing here. So I'll work with that person, find out what this entity is doing, what kind of benefit they are actually getting out of having this attachment and what the best way to release that is. And I have to admit, I would say 90, 95% of the time somebody comes to me with an attachment, we can get rid of it because we figure out what the issues are, what's going on, depending on how persistent it is, how long it's been around. And I've had some clients where I go, no, I can feel that attachment. And until you figure out and we work on this thing and this issue together, or you work with it with somebody else, that thing needs to be there. A little tricky, but it's always a mutual agreement for an attachment. It's never, it's, and this is one of the things I want to throw out there when paranormal working, we're never really the victim of it. It's always a co-creative process. And whatever energy we're outputting is what these things are picking up on. And if you were aware that your energy output is what's drawing these things and connecting you, now you have that conscious ability to shift your energy output so that you're no longer there. So at first, it might seem like we're a victim of a paranormal attack or that sort of thing. But when you realize that, no, there's something internally about me that is drawing this there, and I have that ability to shift this, you do. And that's where you take your power back is realizing it's always co-creative 100% of the time. And I think that's such an important point you make because it helps us shift from victim mentality into being powerful creators, co-creators of our lives, co-creators of this existence. I've always sensed that the energetic output that we have is in a way like an invitation. It's like you send out an invitation to a certain type of party and whoever likes that type of party will RSVP and show up. Exactly. Can you share with us, are you willing to share with us an experience with an entity or entities, or maybe even entities that you purposefully created? Oh, I create entities all the time. I know that for a fact, but, oh, wow. I have a huge range of stories, mm-hmm. huge range of everything. Well, give Let's see if I can give some examples. I have to rack my brain here because it's a huge filing cabinet. There was a friend I was helping out who was experimenting with some magical techniques and maybe some things didn't go quite the way it was planned. And now there's some sort of a negative icky thing actually hanging out in the closet. It's funny, the closet monster, right? Yeah. So I came in and showed some techniques on energy shifting and how to change the energy And we did that. She changed the energy in the room. And this thing just jumped out of the house and all of the dogs in her backyard started barking like crazy when this Mm -hmm. thing left the house. And after that, no problems whatsoever. I love uh, the reason why I just laughed is because a few years ago, I, I helped a person that's very close to me to actually clean up their closet. Their closet was a place where they just would 
throw everything in. It was like the like out of a horror movie, a closet, and they were just not able to do it themselves. And for years and years, stuff just piled up. Everything else in the house was in perfect order, but that closet. And they also knew that this was attached to certain childhood experiences. So I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna clean it up for you because for them it was just a thing they they weren't they just couldn't go there and do it. And I remember during the cleaning out process, all of a sudden this real large it, dark figure just popped up there and I was like whoa I was stone sober and uh, and then it was gone and the uh, my friend also told me after this closet situation was clear that they personally felt much lighter it was quite something I had forgotten about that actually yeah that's a great example of the physical and spiritual connection sometimes Mm. we got to clear the physical space to get the spiritual out Absolutely. And you also give very good tips for when we prepare for whether it's a meditation or a ceremony or a ritual, are there certain things that we should definitely keep in mind and do prior to engaging with whatever oh, yeah. we're talking into? The key rule that I have, I've actually got a, a list of nine rules for interacting with the paranormal, and it even works for spiritual practice too. The primary one that I always emphasize everywhere is similarities attract and perpetuate. Whatever your mindset is what you're going to draw to you. And so when you're going into a ritual setting, you want to be connected to to whatever your sense is of what's sacred. So be willing to spend like some time in meditation, some time in contemplation to not only think about it, but to feel it, to experience it, that it's there with you, that it's there within you. Because if you can perceive something, you have it within you. And if you're aware of the sacred, you can feel the sacred, you have that sacred spark within you. Therefore, you are a sacred being. And with that awareness, you can breathe that into the space around you. And you are now connected internally in the space all the way around you. And that's just a great way of setting up ritual. And of course, you can do any sort of thing. You can just do a meditation to visualize this and experiencing it. But you can go in and use runes like the rune algas is mm-hmm. great for that. Just getting that sense of sacred and projecting into the room while going chanting that rune to connect with it. That's probably the best thing to do for any sort of a spiritual situation is just connect to your sense of sacred, feel it, and then experience it in the space around you and use whatever techniques you need to get it there for you. Beautiful. Thank you, Kadrick. And to tie up this really fascinating, amazing conversation. I'd like to hear your take on how human consciousness has changed over the past 200 years and where it's where you think it's going. Yeah, we are in a very interesting epoch for human evolution because it is increasing at a massive pace. Even look at just at our technology in the past 200 years has just accelerated faster than it has in the past 2000 years. The same is true about us. And I think it's because a lot of us are individually doing our spiritual work. We're individually doing our shadow work. We're doing our clearing. We're healing ourselves internally and working ourselves to this higher state of being. And by doing that, it's getting inserted to the collective unconscious, making it easier for other people to do. And one of the examples that I give of this is like back in the French Revolution period, 
it was a great thing for people to put a cat in a cage and lower it into a fire and then just have a great time about that cat screaming and, and it's awful today thoroughly reprehensible never do anything like that but 200 years ago it was like hey yeah this is great fun day is just no we're not doing that yeah and if we look statistically not by what the news media tells us but if we look at the actual numbers we are in the most peaceful prosperous time in all of humanity hmm. and despite it's there's going to be these little ups and downs there's going to be these violent outbursts things are going on in the world but overall we are becoming more and more peaceful you know, even with some of the wars and the violence that make it in the news today, there are also these other articles about soldiers are just not willing to fight anymore. The entire countries are saying, no, I don't care if you guys want us to go to war. We're not doing it. So there is this collective shift to becoming more peaceful. We are more connected because of the internet. We're seeing the plight of other human beings personally. We can see these faces on TV where once upon a time, organizations tried to demonize the other side and say, look at these horrible, awful people. Today, we can see them as people to people, face to face. And we're like, no, I'm not doing that. So we have this worldwide connection. We've got this worldwide vibe, like this worldwide tribe that's being created now that we can realize it's no, we're not demonizing other humans. We're all humans. So we're getting to this place where we don't need that anymore that we all can work on this spiritual evolution together. And it really does come by being willing to work on yourself, to take care of yourself, because the more you work on yourself, even though it sounds selfish, you're doing your own work, that's going into the collective unconscious and giving permission for everybody else to work on themselves too. And that I think that's the continued evolution is we're getting to that higher state of being where we don't need all of this violence and aggression anymore. I could not agree more, Kedrick. I've always believed when we lift ourselves up, we also automatically uplift those around us, whether it's our inner circles or humanity at large. And we may not be able to see the effects of our own work, of our own elevating ourselves, but they're far greater than we could ever imagine. There is a question I like to ask every guest, and you've already shared a lot of amazing practices with us, but is there any practice that over your lifetime has elevated your experience mentally, physically, and or spiritually that you would like to share with us? Believe it or not, it's just taking that walk, taking mm -hmm. a walk with a clear mind. At first, the first few times you take the walk, let your mind chatter. Don't have any music, don't have anything, just let your mind chatter. But eventually when you take this walk, start focusing on something that you do want to accomplish. Think, feel, and experience it while you're taking that walk. And just by being in that clear-minded state, thinking, feeling, and experiencing this thing that you do want to experience, just acknowledge that you've already experienced it. It's there. You don't have to worry about it. It's going to happen. And it does. It just it does. It's just, you can have all the candles, you can have all the incense, you can have all the accoutrement that you want. That's great. But it realize it just comes down to you and your mind. And just, I think taking that walk or that meditation to think, feel, and experience is how you create. Beautiful. Thank you, Kedrick. 
And for those who'd like to learn more about you or connect with you, where can they find you? Well, I've got my main website is kedrick.com, but you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I'm all over the place. Don't hesitate to send me an email or a message. I like talking to people, answering questions, that sort of thing. But yeah, definitely check out kedrick.com. There's good stuff there for you. Yes, definitely. I highly recommend it too. And thank you for coming on the show today. This was really wonderful conversation. Lots of food for thought. I really love this. I'm most grateful. Thank you. I'm really grateful for this too. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 